Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. This episode is recorded from the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. First Nations people have been custodians of this land for tens of thousands of years. Colonisation is a process that law and regulation have been deeply complicit in, taking land, sea, children and lives. And I note that stolen wages and racial discrimination in the workplace are another historic and contemporary example of this. I want to acknowledge that despite colonisation, 60,000 years of wisdom continues and so too does non-Aboriginal Australia's obligations to take a daily personal responsibility to support reconciliation through truth and justice. One of the central gaps in this podcast has been how the workplace or the relationship between the worker and the employer is regulated. So I've been fortunate to speak with Josh Bornstein to help us navigate this space. Josh is a principal lawyer with Morris Blackburn and national practice leader of both its social justice group and its employment and industrial relations group. In 2019, he was awarded Workplace Relations Partner of the Year by Lawyers Weekly. He's got over 20 years of experience as an employment and industrial relations lawyer, addressing bullying, sexual harassment, and representing some of Australia's key unions and civil society organisations. He's on the board of progressive think tank, the Australia Institute, and has written loads of articles that I've put in the show notes. Josh, 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 Josh takes us on a journey through some of the key issues and opportunities in 2022 with the new federal government, the chronic issues facing gig workers in the Australian economy. We take a lovely detour to discuss digital platforms in their regulation or, or perhaps lack thereof before reflecting on Josh's work around gender equality and what are some of the opportunities uh, in this space too. It's a wonderful episode that I could have run for much longer. I hope you enjoy the episode. Rate it and share it as usual, please. Um, Well, thanks so much, Josh, for coming on the show today. As you know, the first question is, why does regulation matter to you and to your community? So how do you respond to that? Well, I'm a lawyer for a start, so regulation is pretty important when you're working in the area of the law. Um, The law provides a set of rules and regulations um, that bind us all and a legal system that at least theoretically is meant to be available to all, and that's to ensure that disputes and conflicts are managed in a civilised way rather than uh, in a violent or uncivilised way. Um, And so just from that point of view, regulation is important. But over and above that, um, you know, since the, I think, the 70s in America and the 80s in Australia, the question of regulation and deregulation and whether we should have regulation and what's good or bad regulation has been a subject of constant debate. Um, It's also been a debate uh, that uh, I've had to get used to as an industrial relations and employment lawyer because 
the laws and regulation of that area has been fiercely politically contested for my whole career since the mm. um, at least the 80s. So there's been multi a multitude of campaigns to change workplace laws mm. um, and the laws have been changed over and over and over. And now we have uh, a fair work act. You can't see this properly, but it's... I'm um, being shown a, a wonderful 2020, 2021 fair work it act. Used to be, it used to be a very, you know, slim felt volume. And now it feels like there's two bricks um, that could be used as a door stopper yeah. with any door that uh, you challenged it with. And that's because, so the law has become far more complicated because the um, politics is so, has been so fiercely contested mm. and the politics about what uh, proper regulation should apply to the labour market continues to be a highly vexed um, political and social question and economic question. Well, yeah, it's interesting that you say that. You know, we're coming, um, you know, we, we've been through a 30 years of, of I guess, neoliberalism, probably 40, to be honest. Um, and there's been a lot of arguments around uh, that, that it's been a deregulation at, um, era where they've cut regulation or cut red tape, as people like to say. Um, but there's actually been counter counterpoints to that or criticisms of that, that account saying that actually the privatization of services has meant there's been an increase of regulation um, in order to deal with the fact that or the challenges that come with privatization. I'm not sure what your thoughts are. Well, I'm, I'll move the, move the debate back to industrial relations, which mm. is much more familiar territory to me than privatization. But mm. as I said, in the 80s, uh, we had a slim volume that, uh, of the Conciliation and Arbitration Act and then the Industrial Relations Act um, and now uh, the volume of law and regulation uh, has grown exponenti exponentially mm. and <clears throat> that's associated with a, what, a rhetoric of deregulation, but the reality is very different. Mm. And I can illustrate it this way. The uh, workplace laws... Should turn off my mobile so it doesn't uh, do that. My cat will interrupt this podcast. Okay, He's interrupted many. Yeah. Um, so workplace laws have been changed to allow employers and corporations major flexibility uh, to deal with employees in all sorts of different ways as they see fit, and to effectively avoid collective bargaining with employees in their unions. Um, so they've been made much more flexible for corporations. At the same time, unions have been uh, hammered by an enormous amount of red tape. Um, <laughs> the strongest whistleblowers, I'll give you some examples. The strongest whistleblower laws in the country don't apply to the private sector, don't apply to the government, they apply to trade unions. Right. So if you do a comparison of um, whistleblower protections for public servants, for employees working for the banks, the big mining companies and employees of trade unions, um, employees of trade unions would be a tiny fraction of the numbers of employees um, mm -hmm. in elsewhere in the labour market. 
by far the strongest protection for any whistleblowing they do about their union is contained in uh, Fair Work uh, Registered Organisations Act. Unions are prosecuted over stickers and flags, sometimes spending millions of dollars in prosecutions over stickers and flags mm-hmm. and anything that's – and posters. Um, and uh, as we've seen intermittently over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, ASIC, you know, briefly woke up from a period of slumber and has now been put back to sleep. Yeah. I think at the request of the Morrison government. Uh, so the the regulatory agencies that now prosecute unions um, uh, that approach is entirely distinct from the approach that applies to the private sector. So regulation is highly politicized, highly skewed, um, and highly selective. And we don't see that very visibly, I don't think, in the, no. in the public debate. And no. you, you have to have a lot of technical technical expertise to um, to see that that difference that you're unpacking there, which is which is unfortunate, right? Because and you've got to be able to join the dots, right? Yeah. So that's the that's the hard part of this exercise to look at across the the landscape and look at what APRA. Um, uh, ASIC is doing, look at what the regulators in um, the workplace are doing, mm-hmm. look at other areas of regulation, digital technology, the big tech is a huge issue, I think, for all of us, and um, whether it's properly regulated and try and join dots. Yeah. And um, I try and do that as a bit of an amateur, and occasionally I uh, write articles about it and speak about it, but um, the issue of regulation, deregulation and good and effective regulation is not very well understood and Mm. is not really properly debated in this country very much. Mm, No, and I'll move on to the next question in a sec, but it does highlight to to me that what constitutes, I guess, quote-unquote, good regulation or or not good regulation is uh, pretty dependent on, I guess, your political stance on, you know, employers or employees' rights, um, in terms of industrial relations, whether those things are, are stated or unstated, or th- those those views are, are conscious or unconscious. Nevertheless, we're we're, we're in twenty twenty two. We've just had a, a federal election. Labor's been elected. Going to be a majority, more than likely. I'm wondering, what do you see as the key um, industrial relations or workforce issues in twenty twenty two? I mean, I think the one that's getting a lot of airtime at the moment is wage stagnation low wage growth, particularly in an economic cycle, which now means inflation and cost of living is going up. So wages have actually been stagnating for almost a decade. There's been barely any real wage growth. In the last six months, they've started going down. Um, So that's become a bit of a political hot potato. And um, that's, I think, there's an immediate political focus on that. And uh, the Albanese government saying they will support. This was contentious during the political um, campaign we just had, but Anthony Albanese was asked a question and answered that uh, uh, he would support um, wage growth, which kept pace with inflation. Mm. Um, not 
So that just means you don't go backwards. <laughs> it doesn't money. mean you're going yeah. forward. Yeah. Um, and that was very contentious. Um, but that seems to be the current position of the government, although it doesn't have the power itself to deliver on that outcome. Um, it can make a submission to an independent tribunal and we'll see what outcome happens there. But more importantly for me, going through this period of 20 or 30 years of fierce contestation about the regulation of the labour market, what's clearly happened as part of the neoliberal project is a massive wealth redistribution. Mm. Um, and what's happened is a significant amount of wealth has been transferred from workers to shareholders. That was illustrated to me one night on ABC News, in fact, uh, probably 12 months ago when Alan Kohler put up one of his amazing charts, which showed that stock market gains between the 50s and the 80s uh, were generated in, by basically economic growth. The pie grew and the stock market grew. Um, but in the 30 years of the neoliberal project since then, stock market gains were generated not by economic growth, but by transferring wealth from workers to shareholders. So mm. the pie didn't grow so much. It just got cut differently. Mm. And that's a product of regulation which has suppressed employee voice, suppressed employee bargaining power, suppressed collective bargaining in unions, and um, skewed the, the balance of power very strongly in favour of employers to unilaterally determine um, wages and conditions. And that's why we see uh, people have been saying, oh, when the unemployment rates goes down, you'll see wage growth kick up. They were saying that at 7%, then they were saying mm. it at 6%, and they were saying at 5%, now we've hit 4%, maybe even just under 4%, wages still haven't kicked up. Mm. They, then they say, no, it's a question of productivity. Uh, well, if you look at... Uh, the economic wonk graphs that have been charting productivity for the last 30 years. Uh, since the 90s, workers' productivity has gone up like that and their wages has decoupled. Mm. So the usual economic forces of supply and demand are not working when it comes to wage growth, and that's because of the accumulated effect of our laws and regulations which suppress, which suppress it. So that's going to be a huge issue for this government and any government uh, into the future uh, because I think as prices go up and debt remains high, people will start to feel the pinch more and more. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, you, you said you're an amateur. Um, whatever, there's 43 rungs below that on that level of competence on this topic. But from what you say... Uh, you know, that doesn't sound like a broken system either. That sounds like a system by design or, or a system doing what it's meant to do. Indeed, indeed. And the opposition and the unions um, have been waving a meme around, you know, in the election campaign, which was a quote from Matthias Cormann when he was finance minister saying low wage growth is, is baked into the architecture of our, of our political system. It's a deliberate design feature. And yeah. that's right. Yeah. So now that's getting politically more and more difficult to justify and people are getting 
angry about it. And so we're in this period where wages of, you know, wage growth is stagnated and in fact it's going backwards um, due to inflation. Well, what do you see as the, the, the main levers? I presume these are federal ones, but you'll, you'll correct me if not. Um, but what do you see as the main levers government has to try to address this problem? If, if I'm right in saying to you that the reason wages aren't growing uh, is based on the laws and regulation of the labour market now, then as a matter of logic, you can change those laws and change those regulations and, and change that dynamic. Mm. Um, the neoliberal project was about transferring wealth and suppressing unions. And if you're going to actually uh, take a different tack, you're going to have to confront the current set of laws and change them. So a number of things can be done to produce stronger, healthier wage growth. One is you can change the law to um, provide stronger guidance to the Fair Work Commission, which hands down decisions for minimum wage workers about the sorts of relevant considerations they should um, take into account. You could, you could mandate, for example, that they have to take into account inflation and a um, whole range of issues which would steer them uh, into a, a direction that's more favourable to right. healthier wage growth. Um, that's for minimum wage earners. Uh, for most of the private sector, they no longer can collectively bargain. Mm. And so there's been a collapse in bargaining. And that's because the system is out of reach for most employees in the, the private sector. So you would look at ways to try and revive uh, bargaining. If you don't have collective bargaining in a workplace, what you end up with is individual template contracts. I see them on my desk every week. Mm. They are all the same because there is no bargaining. So if you don't have collective bargaining, by and large, you don't have bargaining. Mm. How do you change the laws to allow um, bargaining to be resuscitated in the private sector? Enterprise bargaining, which means a 7-Eleven is an enterprise um, and the, the two or three employees are meant to bargain is not realistic. It's too small. There's no bargaining power for people like that. Mm. You've got to have a flexible, dynamic bargaining system, which recognises that in some situations you need to be able to bargain across uh, different structures. 7-Eleven structure as a whole might be taken as one across uh, multiple employers, across um, industries and, and sector bargaining. So you've got to look at that. That's what the OECD has been encouraging um, for some years now, uh, given what has happened in Australia has also happened in other Western countries, um, including the UK and England. Has there been much uptake on those? On this, on this issue of sector yeah. bargaining and, and different forms of uh, bargaining to try and uh, resuscitate it, mm. this is an issue that has been um, prosecuted by a number of unions, um, United Workers Union, Transport Workers Union, other unions, and also the ACTU. Um, the opposition um, led by Anthony Albanese uh, hasn't agreed to to support such a policy, but I know the campaign continues. 
Um, but that is, I think, the most important um, change that would yeah. help uh, fix the situation. Um, a third change, uh, but a look at uh, a number of the feminised industries, including aged care and childcare, where uh, the level of pay is dreadful, um, and which will require government support, and the level of pay in aged care, for example, has produced a systemic, um, well, a systemic abuse of aged care residents yeah. uh, in many institutions, and so that needs some drastic reform. And the other thing the government can do uh, is change the austerity setting, which is applied to public servants' wages. Yeah, exactly. uh, this has been an issue at state level and Commonwealth level for uh, many years where uh, public servants were um, subjected to very limited wage increases, um, mm. austerity measures. If you increase the wages of the public sector, that actually flows on eventually to the private sector as well. It's so it's a competition, right? And yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So just for that reason uh, alone, it historically is um, part of trying to stimulate wage growth. So there are a range of measures. There's many others that um, I could talk to you about that relate to particularly technical aspects of the Fair Work Act, but essentially it's about boosting the minimum wage system, resuscitating the bargaining system, and uh, dealing with the chronic underpayment of incredibly important work in the feminised care industries, mm. and mm. Also, uh, also addressing public sector wage austerity. Rather than the maybe the technical aspects of it, well, I'm I'm wondering what, what are the political dimensions to this. So you're saying that Labor's not in, you know interested in opening up this you know. Uh, the, these types of bargaining again. Um, what are the reasons for that? Is it going to be politically unpalatable and you know open up a quote unquote uh, class warfare, or at least is that the the argument that would be made by the opposition? I assume. I assume, as as um, has been the subject of a lot of commentary, the Labor Party adopted a, a more small target approach uh, in opposition. It's actually been a successful approach. Um, because they've won governments, hard to argue, uh, with that given the outcome. And uh, undoubtedly, any change to the bargaining system uh, will be fiercely contested by the corporations who have benefited enormously from the wealth redistribution mm -hmm. I'm talking about. Yeah. So um, they will fiercely um, contest changes to bargaining laws which give employees more bargaining power that's yeah. my that's my expectation oh, interesting though because although they might not have a political mandate from the election you know there will be i don't know if a mandate will grow or pressure will grow um, as inflation um, grows over the next 12 months or so indeed political pressure i think i think they're in a difficult position because political pressure will grow uh if wage growth is being uh, 
going backwards, actually. If we, in real terms, we're going backwards, that will put all sorts of pressure on people in terms of debt, um, in terms of cost of living, and that will translate to big political pressure. So we will live through interesting times if that occurs. Yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't, why don't we move from these sort of more general trends to a specific industry? And we hear a lot about the, the gig economy, um, but we're also starting to hear a bit more about um, gig workers and their work conditions. We're hearing a lot of stories about folks working in really unsafe working conditions, and at times we're, we're hearing about deaths. And that raises questions about the regulatory frameworks in place, if any, and whether they're fit for purpose uh, to create a safe working environment for these workers or I note that sometimes they are um, in a contested way defined as contractors. Is that something that you're seeing in the work that you're doing? Yes, it's another uh, big issue in the labour market. I mean, gig, gig work is still a small percentage of the overall labour market, but it's growing Gig companies, like other big tech companies, thrive on avoiding regulation, uh, trying to argue that they are beyond regulation, um, that they shouldn't be um, regulated by conventional employment laws because they're so amazingly innovative and different from anything before. Mm. Uh, That is all public relations Um, spin. Um, The gig model is actually in many ways a reversion to the pre-industrial revolution model of piecework, where you got allocated bits and pieces of work and paid for piecework. Um, So it's a very old model with a new veneer because there's an app that that drives it. Um, And Uh, gig companies are fending off or trying to fend off regulation all over the world, particularly in relation to the treatment of their workers and whether they're employees and contractors. There's cases all over America, um, the UK, Spain, uh, other parts of the globe. And uh, it's been an issue uh, of political contestation here. The Transport Workers Union has been very vocal and active in this sphere. And I think uh, that the Albanese government has a mandate, has promised that if elected, it will introduce a law that allows the Fair Work Commission to decide uh, whether workers in that sector obtain certain rights and conditions. So will they get sick leave, uh, a minimum pay rate, and so on? And I think that that's on the basis of not um, considering whether they're employees or contractors and not getting into that argument, but just mm-hmm. to determine um, what are the proper minimum standards that should apply to workers in the gig economy. And that's, that's a, a very good start. So... Yeah. If that, if that occurs, that will see uh, more regulation of minimum conditions and health and safety standards because we've seen many fatalities of, of gig workers um, and huge uh, court cases and litigation about whether they're employees or contractors and appeals and um, protracted disputes about that. 
mm-hmm. I think the the approach of the government is to avoid that sort of ongoing, endless uh, debate and just say whether they're employees or contractors, here's what they're entitled to, and, and allow the Fair Work Commission to determine that after hearing from all the parties. Okay, well, that sounds like a readily implementable framework, a, a framework they could implement fairly quickly. Yes, yes. Well, that's that's certainly their policy. One other, I, I neglected to mention one other policy related to this issue about the labour market is um, for the last uh, 30 years, uh, again, during what we call the neoliberal project, um, many companies have outsourced uh, employment. Originally, I think in the words of uh, a commentator in the Financial Times, I adore called Rana Faruha, uh, global corporates turned to offshoring labour and tax um, in a bid to transfer wealth to themselves and their shareholders and executives. So we saw for many years jobs going overseas and then they discovered that they could outsource and cut costs closer to home. We've seen that recently with Qantas outsourcing 2,000 jobs in a case that uh, is before the federal court at the moment, where the court has de- determined they did that illegally to avoid bargaining with the union. So, um, and what happens in those situations where there is outsourcing is you've got still got employees of Qantas working, for example, at the airport, and along comes uh, a group of labour hire employees who are working on cheaper rates working alongside the Qantas employees. So the, uh, another part of the agenda of the incoming Albanese government, where there's a mandate, is to legislate for same, same job, same pay. Yeah. yeah. So to try and uh, stop the endless uh, cutting of labour costs yeah. by you know, a bit of a financial reconstruction, a bit of restructuring, a bit of financial wizardry, which means one, <clears throat> Qantas immediately pays something like less, achieves a wage cut of 30% or a labour cost cut of 30% just by sacking secure employees and sourcing the same labour through an intermediary. They can cut about 30%. And then thereafter, Qantas no longer has to bargain with its employees about terms and conditions. It can just say to the labour hire company, here's what I'm willing to give you to give to your workers. And if you don't like it, I'll open up uh, the contract to a tender process. The workers who are doing the same work that the the previous employees did can't bargain with Qantas because they're no longer employed by Qantas. Um, and so Qantas goes from having to bargain to being able to unilaterally set labour costs and continue to suppress uh, wages. That's so unfathomable, Josh. That that's possible. well. It's been going. It's been going on since the eighties, and it's become, um, you know, and the the employees and the unions have lost that debate and lost that argument for many years, and it's decimated um, employee bargaining power very, very ruthlessly. 
employees can spend 30 years building up terms and conditions at a particular corporation or in an industry and have that disappear uh, overnight with a outsourcing decision um, which fragments the labour market, fractures the employees into a smaller constellations and eliminates any bargaining with the major corporation. So um, in a proper bargaining system, you might look at, well, where Qantas does that, can we still allow the workers with the um, intermediary labour hire agency to bargain with Qantas? Can we give yeah. bargaining rights? That may be a way to deal with it, but uh, the Albanese government, I think, is likely to introduce a law that says if you have these people working alongside one another, they get the same pay, which is the, the pay of the employees. That's not going to be very popular, but I look forward to it. Um, Indeed. We will yeah. see how that plays out. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, well, it's really interesting you say that. You, you, you know, in the, in the early, earlier in your answer, you were talking about digital platforms, and I know that you've um, you've written about um, and you've had lived experience of the issue as well, um, being harassed online. But you've written about um, the need to better regulate these digital platforms by imposing a duty of care so that they are required to create a safe environment for users. Um, of their platforms or services, um, I'm wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit, a little bit about that. Sure, I will. Can I go back a few steps to talk oh, yeah. about the emergence of these monopolies, these huge corporations? These these are sort of the flagship illustration of uh, our politics and our legal systems not being able to keep up with mm. and properly regulate the emergence of these giant behemoths, which are, have revenue that uh, is beyond the wildest dreams of the GDP of many states. So their power is immense. The power of Amazon, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and so on um, is enormous. And when you're generating that sort of money, you can... Uh, parlay that money into political um, rent-seeking influence and so on. It's a huge issue. And in many ways, it's reminiscent of the same sort of dilemma that confronted, for example, Teddy Roosevelt in the Gilded Age in the early 1900s. And he's, what, he's a political hero of mine, and he's famous for declaring that the state has got to have the right of supervision over the major, over the great corporations in those days who were rampaging monopolies operating in gas and oil and the railways and creating all sorts of carnage with their workers, with other businesses, uh, with all sorts of unlawful practices. Mm. Now we're dealing with these, these massive digital uh, tech companies that are impacting the functioning of democracy, that are pumping out disinformation, that are um, associated with terrorism, uh, race hate crimes, all sorts of issues. They also provide wonderful, wonderful services. You know, mm -hmm. they provide 
I enjoy Twitter because I get to, contrary to all of the criticism of the social media platforms, it provides me with links to articles from brilliant writers all over the world, like Rana Faruha, I mentioned earlier. Um, and it's opened my eyes much more to brilliant writing and essays from all over the world. However, um, there are many problems that we are dealing with uh, as a result of the emergence of these giants. And one of the issues is online trolling, bullying, harassment, which is a, a massive issue. And I was subjected to a pretty awful um, set of experiences probably five, six, seven years ago, seven years ago it is now, by someone who ultimately ended up uh, being jailed and is still in jail in America um, and who pursued me uh, to cause me harm. Um, so having had that experience and also representing particularly women, women in the media and in journalism who get ferociously harassed and trolled um, with death threats and rape threats. Um, and given my interest in proper regulation of major corporations, uh, it's something I've uh, maintained an interest in. And um, having had the background I have with also the labour market, what you understand is that when Teddy Roosevelt was trying to tame the great corporations in the Gilded Age. Uh, in those days, if you got injured or lost an arm in an abattoir, you got sacked. You didn't get compensated, you got sacked. Mm -hmm. And um, journalists, including Upton Sinclair, wrote about, wrote novels about it, wrote essays about it, um, which were seized on by Roosevelt to start the process of, of civilising um, business when it come, came to the safe treatment of their work, workers. And part of that was imposing a duty of care on corporations to maintain a safe workplace. We're used to that in our culture and our politics. And when we go to the supermarket, we're used to the notion that the supermarket has a duty of care so that customers don't get um, hurt. And when we drive along a road, the government who built the road has a duty of care to ensure that it's not um, going to kill anybody because it's been badly designed or maintained. So when you see how much harm is being experienced by these platforms through algorithms which generate and prioritise conflict and which allow people who are anonymous to... Uh, target people and sometimes harassment to the point of suicide, yeah. um, something needs to be done. And if you take the same approach to workplace safety uh, and apply it to online safety or cyber safety, mm. then you would look to the um, Facebooks and or Meta, as it's now called, um, Googles and uh, Twitters of this world and say, so you, you have a duty of care to your users not to allow a bunch of anonymous neo-Nazis mm. to, uh, to, to cause harm yeah. and allow uh, people who are impacted by that to 
either sue or threaten to sue those companies. My argument is if you did something like that, the internet would be cleaned up of, um, of uh, this problem. The problem would be massively reduced. The companies would have a strong financial incentive to clean up their, their sites, to stop uh, algorithms generating that sort of uh, conflict and abuse, and they would actually clean it up. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's obviously going to be deeply contested by them trying to um, ward off that duty of care, but I, I do think that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's interesting you... You know, we obviously do have some um, legislative instruments in place. We've got a, an Online Safety Act and an e-safety commissioner. Um, but I just noticed, note having worked in regulators myself, um, I guess some concerns about the architecture and some of the messages I'm hearing. You know, I was hearing that, oh, we've, you know, we've had 100% compliance we've, because we've never had to use our compliance notices once because we've had 100% compliance of our requests to the major digital platforms. But to me, that suggests that they're just picking low-hanging fruit rather than really taking them on the, the digital platforms on the big cases that matter. Yeah, yeah. The e-safety commissioner, um, I think... Uh, works at the margins, really, uh, would, as you say, only deal with a tiny fraction of the problem. Ultimately, as, as is the case with workplace safety, if you give a monopoly to a publicly resourced regulator, um, first of all, there's a couple of dangers. You get regulatory capture, particularly with uh, the, the budgets and power of these big mm. corporations. So there's a real risk of regulatory capture and a compliant regulator. Even if they're not compliant, they won't have the resources to deal with more than 5 or 10% of the problem where it's a widespread problem. Mm. So to use a, a good example, for many years, WorkSafe in Victoria was the regulator that uh, dealt with WorkSafe bullying. It was notorious for not dealing with it because there are so many cases of workplace bullying, no regulator adequately deal with it and what you need the best forms of regulation where there is a problem of widespread abuse or non-compliance is you need a regulator to deal with strategic cases you know or a portion of the problem but alongside that you need to give people agency to also yeah. uh, pursue it and that's what's happened with workplace bullying now you have work safe mm -hmm. but now you have uh, a the Fair Work Commission empowered to hear claims by people seeking urgent anti-bullying orders. And yeah. that's had a radically positive impact on workplace culture and the labour market in Australia. So we need to do something like that in the online yeah. space. It's, it's too immense for yeah. any regulator, even if it was a top-notch regulator, to yeah. even scratch the surface. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, look, in the in this podcast, we obviously discuss regulation and we spoke to John Braithwaite, um, one of the founders of, I guess, Responsive Regulation. And he says that you should be responsive to the people you're regulating. But that also creates risks, which is a risk that you become captured, that you've noted. And one of the ways that you address that is through tripartism, which is to allow um, third parties to be part of the regulatory process which is the kinds of mechanisms of people being able to sue that you've noted here. 
Anyway, that was a bit of a detour, but but a good one, I think. I do too. I'm I'm very I'm passionate about this issue. Why can't someone who's being bullied instead of going to an agency and waiting for the agency to um, process it, which might take several weeks, and deal with it, not get access to a quick tribunal straight away to stem the harm? That's exactly the lesson of anti-bullying laws now, which are in the Fair Work Act and which provide that mechanism for quick response to minimise the harm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, look, it, it positions um, citizens or consumers as regulators, as bottom-up regulators, which I think is, is a really important thing. Another set of issues that we're facing is uh, gender inequality, uh, pay inequity, um, and sexual harassment in the workplace. Yes. And I guess those might be more um, realistic in addressing those issues or um, goals now after the election in 2022. So I'm just keen on your reflections and, and any work that you're doing in the space. Look, um, I do a lot of work for women, particularly who've experienced sexual harassment. And that's been a, a fascinating process for me um, because it's sort of opened up my thinking about ways in which we could try and address what's a deep, long-standing, structural, systemic problem. It's still going on. I still have horrific cases um, of, a, of sexual assault, sexual harassment uh, coming in each week. So, um, but again, it's got me thinking about what can we do because we've had laws that tell people you're not allowed to rape or sexually assault people or sexually harass them at work. And we're now aware of more and more cases than ever before. Um, So, and my thinking's led me to, you know, reading and uh, diving in a bit deeper. My sort of personal perspective is that Uh, sexual harassment and discrimination is a product of gender inequality. Gender inequality is baked into our our pores and our society. It's something we learn from a very early age, and it's got to be addressed as a policy issue from cradle to grave. And um, so we've got to look at, uh, for example, some of the fabulous recommendations from uh, the work of the Human Rights Commission on Respect at Work, yeah. um, including the, the very important flagship recommendation, which hasn't been adopted yet, which is requiring employers to take positive steps to reduce uh, the problem, to, to minimise or reduce the problem. But we've also got to look at the distribution of work, wealth and power between men and women and the relationship between men and women. And so I think one of the things that could be a game changer, I mean, I don't think you're going to fix this issue and address this issue and improve it unless you've got a very multifaceted, sophisticated approach because it's so so endemic and baked in um, to everything we know and do. Um, that uh, we need to try and encourage, if not more than encourage, nudge more men to take 
um, parental leave, extended parental leave, um, to share the, the early child raising responsibilities. Yeah. Um, because I think that would have an impact not only on the way men and women interact and the, uh, the respect for one another, it would um, impact, have a big impact on the labour market. Mm. It would allow women a greater ability to re-enter the, the labour market um, and would be a huge, give a huge impetus to efforts to address gender inequality at work. So I think that would be a, uh, a very powerful um, change in the right direction. It occurs in some of the Nordic countries where they have a system which encourages men and women after the birth of a child to both um, take extended leave and there's, there's an approach of use it or lose it. So if you if both do so, they get a very generous um, cumulative entitlement and it's taken up a lot by men as a result. In this country, it's still embryonic in comparison. It's still not really part of our mainstream culture. When I, when I started Morris Blackman, no one did it. Now, now uh, some of uh, my team are a bit younger than me, uh, have started as fathers, for example, to take three or six months off. Mm. Um, and so we're, it started, but it's still very slow, slow going. That would be a huge, huge change if we, we um, introduced a system which not necessarily mandated it, but strongly, strongly encouraged it. Yeah, and, and people are doing that in the absence of um, policy leadership or, or systemic kind of approaches to that currently. So they are, they are. So there is, there is enlightened approaches being adopted on an ad hoc basis in different industries and entities. Mm. But um, the the game changer about changing our culture, which is still, mm. we still see a lot of sexism and mm. um, gender inequality. Uh, Gender violence, you know, gendered violence, um, uh, poorly paid, feminised work. There's a whole range of dimensions to this problem, yeah. um, and it needs to be attacked on every front. And I can't help but think that um, that second reform area that you noted earlier in the podcast around um, better um, industrial bargaining um, processes could help address this issue of pay inequity as well, um, particularly in those quote-unquote feminised industries. Yeah. Indeed. You would, you would have particular focus on uh, trying to improve the bargaining power of low-paid employees, uh, primarily women in those care industries, mm. to try and um, get them properly paid and to, to catch up uh, in the difference between how men and women are treated at work. So yeah. yes, that's, that would be a real focus of, um, of positive reform and regulation if we could do that. Absolutely. Well, um, that's, that's enough of two men talking about gender equality for, for now. <laughs> <laughs> I was enjoying it, but the longer it went, the more I was like... Okay. too conscious of, of our... Uh, 
of lack of diversity. I know it's hard on a, a panel of two white males to um, to meet our goals. But anyway, there you go. Right. We can figure it all out here, just you and me, Josh. We um, can. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you've led us to the end of this conversation, this lovely conversation about why regulation matters to you and your community. Um, what are some of the sort of key reform areas in 2022 after a federal election? Um, and then diving into some of those specific areas like the gig economy. We had a nice detour to the digital platforms. We've spoken about gender inequality. Um, but now we're at the point at the end of the podcast where it's um, asking um, what you want the listeners to do. So what's the one thing you want listeners to go away and do after hearing you today? That's a difficult question, isn't there? What's the one well, you can thing be they should do? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, I think the biggest issue that um, is the overarching issue about all of this is what's the proper role of government? What's the proper role of the private sector? What's the proper role of non-government organisations, trade unions, community organisations and citizens? Mm. And to think about whether we've got the balance right um, in the system that we currently have. My personal view is we have a delegitimised um, government, the public sector's been stripped back, uh, private sector consultants have been brought in, uh, the whole notion of red tape has been used as a propaganda arm, tax paying has been demonised, with the only good thing about tax is cutting it up, we're told. Um, so that makes it impossible for anyone to, to really undertake meaningful tax change because all they can do is cut taxes, it's only one way. Mm. That's producing a very, I mean, that sort of politics helps people who are well-paid like me, partners in law firms like me, but it disadvantages it disadvantages most people in the economy. So the politics that uh, disapproves of government regulation, of uh, proper regulation of the private sector, having a strong independent public service, strong uh, civil society infrastructure, strong um, charities, vocal yeah. charities, lots yeah. of checks and balances, unions. That's a highly democratic um, philosophy. I think we've lost sight of that. And that's a very big um, subject for your listeners to consider, but really that's the most valuable uh, area of focus that I think we, we need, which is really to to try and encourage and nourish a different approach. Those are lovely um, uh, reflections and questions for the listeners to go away with. Thank you so much for your time today, Josh. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Simon. That was a, a wonderful conversation. I enjoyed it very much. <laughs>